Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Uh, we are continuing in our, our study through the book of Hebrews. And so if you're uh, with us last week, this is a reminder, but if you weren't with us last week, when we, we started last week in Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 10, what we saw is that beginning in Hebrews chapter 5, all the way through chapter 10, verse 18, is the, the main argument, the main point, the central theological theme of the book of Hebrews, which is the, the high priestly ministry of Jesus, specifically in relation to the earthly high priestly ministry. And so he's going to spend chapters 5 through 10 showing the superiority of the high priestly ministry of Jesus, that we have a great high priest. And so it started last week, and that's the main argument. He's going he's gonna to continue that argument, but he has to take a detour in our verses today into next week. And he takes this detour because he finds it necessary to exhort his readers. And the main, the, what we'll see is that the main reason he finds it necessary to exhort them is because they're a bunch of big babies. In fact, I almost tell the, the, the sermon, stop being babies. Uh, Will suggested I should just title it, grow up, bro. Um, I didn't go with those. I, I went with exhorting the immature. That's, that's the point. He's exhorting the immature, and so this, ba- this passage deals with Christian immaturity, and it's a challenge, it's an exhortation. And as we're going to see, the author assumes certain things about Christianity, about the Christian life. And, and he makes assumptions about the process or the progress of Christian growth. That, that's going to be a main point of this passage. And as I, as I thought about this passage this week, and as I thought about the main point, I do think this is a message that's uniquely timely for us, for our church, because we are a church filled with people. Most of us, most of you, are people who've been Christians for more than a few years. In fact, I would venture to say, rough estimates, 75% or more, maybe 80, maybe 90% of the members of Fox Hill Road Baptist Church have been Christians for more than, I said, 20 years. Maybe, maybe that's a little high, maybe it's 10 years, but, but the vast majority of, of our people, of you, of me, we've been Christians for a long time. We're a church of individuals who've been following Jesus for quite some time, which means we've been coming to church for quite some time. We've been participating in Sunday school for quite some time. We've been doing Bible studies for quite some time. We've been reading the Bible personally for quite some time. We've been praying or trying to pray for quite some time, for decades for most of us. That's who we are. And the question that we're gonna be forced to ask in light of this passage the question I've been forced to wrestle with this week is, although our church is filled with individuals who've been Christians for decades, the question is whether or not our church is filled with Christians who are mature. Because there's a difference. There's a difference between having gone to church and being a Christian for a long time and being mature. And the assumption of the author of Hebrews that we're going to see is that time spent as a Christian naturally leads to maturity as a Christian. This assumption, this progression, it's not abnormal. This is the way that growth works. And so if you become a Christian, the the natural progress is growth. Children tend to grow and develop into adults. Athletes tend to grow from rookies and newcomers into veterans. Workers tend to grow and develop into, into supervisors or bosses. New Christians tend to grow and develop into mature Christians. This is how Things progress. Growth is natural. And it happens over time. It's not all at once, but it happens. It happens. Growth happens. This is why it's problematic. So, for instance, if you're at, if you're at a restaurant that's open now and you, you see a grown-up drinking from a baby bottle, that, that's problematic. That, right? that should tell you something's not right. Or 
If you hear about a senior engineer at NASA who's asking his, his co-workers for help with long division, hey, show me how to do this again. Wow. Or if you have a long-time mechanic who, who needs to be taught how to change the oil, he's calling his neighbors when he's the one who's been serving for decades as the mechanic in the neighborhood. And there's something unnatural about these examples because growth is natural. And when you've been doing something for a long time, you progress And that's the state of things among those who receive this letter of the Hebrews. Things aren't right as the author's writing to them. They're like the mechanic who doesn't know how to change the oil. In fact, the whole whole reason, the whole purpose for our passage today is he can't continue the discussion that he wants to continue with. He wants to keep talking to them about Jesus and and the order of Melchizedek that Jesus has, has fulfilled. That's where he wants to go, but instead he must digress and he must address their immaturity. It's as if he has to say, okay, pause. Let me come over here and speak like a baby speak to you. Like, now let me remind you, son, this is what you're supposed to do. He's having to digress from what he wants to say because of their immaturity. And his intention in bringing up their maturity and bringing it to the forefront is to cause them to look at themselves and say, well, wait a minute, is this right? Are we where we ought to be? Is, is, Is there some truth to this? Am I a solid food Christian like I think I am or am I simply a milk drinker. And so I want all of us, myself included, to to look at ourselves in the mirror of God's word this morning, because we all, myself included, we all are in need of this challenge. In fact, if you think you don't need it, you prove that you need it more than you think. And so let me read our passage, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll, we'll work through the verses. So Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 11, I'm going to read through the verse, first three verses of chapter 6. And I'm going to stop in, for, in, in verse 3. Uh, it's kind of the middle of an argument, but we're going to pick up 4 through 8 or 4 through 12 next week, Lord willing. That, that, they're difficult passage, verses that we're going to spend our whole sermon on next week. So I'm going to stop in verse 3 of, of, of chapter 6. So Hebrews 5, beginning verse 11. About this we have much to say. Talking about what he's just explained in verses 1 through 10. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have, ha- who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits." Let's stop there. Let me pray for us as we, as we continue. Father, we just want to acknowledge that this is your word to us and that we are to examine ourselves in light of your word. And so I pray that you would permit us, every single one of us, to grow towards Christ's likeness, to, to grow in maturity as a result of our time spent together this morning in your word. And it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, so there's only two, two sections here. There's two points for our outline. There's first we see the issue or the problem, which is laid out in verses 11 through 14, which is was just simply immaturity. That's the issue that he's writing to address. That's what he's having to take this detour to address. And then in verses one through three of, of chapter six, we see the solution. 
And the solution, hopefully you'll see it, and hopefully this is what you leave with, is, is grace or God's grace or dependence on God's grace. That's the solution. The solution is going to be grace. Okay, so we have the issue and the solution. And so let's start there, the first point, verses 11 through 14 of chapter 5, the issue, the, the immaturity. So notice there in verse 11, about this we have much to say. So, so again, the this that he has much to say is what he's just introduced in verses 1 through 10, namely the, the priesthood of Melchizedek. He's just drawn this, this, this comparison, which, which they should get and be able to, to move on from into further detail, this comparison between Jesus and Melchizedek, who is a type of priest who is unlike Aaron, unlike any of the others. And so he said, Jesus is like Melchizedek. And he wants to, to continue, and in fact, he will in, in chapter 7, but in coming to the subject, he's forced to stop and make mention of the difficulties having. I don't know if he, he's writing, he's thinking, oh yeah, I remember this person is there and this person there is there. Oh, actually, every single person, I have to slow down because they, they don't, they're not going to get this. And so he has much to say, he writes to them, and it's hard to explain. Now, if we were to stop there, right, we, we, could, we could be okay with that. That would be true enough, right? It, 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 we have much to say. There, there's much to learn about God that, that's hard to understand. There, there, there are a lot of teachings that are hard to explain. If we stop there, that would make sense, right? Because it, the, the fact that, that God has revealed himself to us, we still have human brains that, that try and understand divine truth. So there's always going to be uh, this issue, a, a difficulty, right? There are some teachings, and in fact, Peter would say this about some of Paul's writings. He says, some of Paul's writings are hard, they're hard. So, so there are some truths that are deep and require stretching your brain. They're intellectually challenging. But that's not where verse 11 stops. He doesn't say that it's hard to explain because we are finite humans. Instead, as we'll see the discussion that he wants to move on to, it's not an intellectual problem. That's not why he doesn't continue on. That's not the problem. It's hard to explain, verse 11 continues, because you have become dull of hearing. So it's not that it's too hard for them. It's that their ears don't work. It's, a, it's an ear problem, not a brain problem. That's why he can't tell that their ears are dull, are lazy, are sluggish. One commentator says the problem isn't the reader's lack of intelligence, nor is it even the case that the subject is intellectually stretching. The entire problem lies in the spiritual disinclination of the readers. In fact, if you have the NIV, uh, it's translated this way. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make clear to you because you no longer try to understand. And right? you see that that's a, a sluggishness, a laziness. Or, or the Christian standard version says, we have a great deal to say about this, and it's difficult to explain because you have become too lazy to understand. And so the problem is that the readers are sluggish. They're apathetic. They honestly could not care less than they do. And that is the problem. They're lazy, apathetic. And he says, I have a lot to say, but I can't because your ears are broken because you're lazy. And he, notice there in verse 12, he further explains the problem, the effects of the dullness. Verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. Do you, do you hear this relationship between time and growth or time and maturity? By this time. Now, we don't know how long it's been. We don't know how long these people have been Christians, but the assumption is that time has passed, a sufficient amount of time has passed that, that would have given them time to grow naturally, timely, not just minimally, but the enough time has passed that the author can say, by this time you ought to be teachers. By this time you ought to be so well acquainted with the things of God that you are the teachers. 
you should be teaching others by this time, is what he's saying. That's what should be, but that's not what is. The reality is, look how he continues there in verse 12. For though this, by this time you ought to be the one teaching, you need someone to teach you. Someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. And so he says, you should be teaching others, but you need to be taught. And you just, it's not just that you need this, this, this class on, 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 uh, on the second level, not just this general, okay, you, there's some things you need to know, but you need to be taught the basic principles of the oracles of God. One translation says you need to know the ABCs, the basics. That is the problem here. They are immature. Their, their time of commitment to Christ is not matched by, by their growth. They have been stunted in their growth, so they're still babies. They haven't progressed or grown or matured the way that they are supposed to. And as a result, and, and this, this, is the, this is the seriousness of this, the, the author of Hebrews, this is no light matter because as a result of their, of their stagnation, we'll see in the coming weeks that they are in danger of losing everything. They're close, as we'll see, and, and as we've seen already, they are close to, to, to forsaking Christ and turning from him completely. And that only happens, that is only a real pressing danger for those who are lazy and apathetic and sluggish. But the person who is, is persistently immature, there is a real danger. And we'll say more about this in, in a minute. But, but adults who live, to try to live on milk alone, grown men and women who eat only baby food, they eventually die. They grow weak and tired, and they stop growing. And the author of the Hebrews says to these men and women who had been following Christ for a long time, he says, you need milk still. And when he says that, that's an indictment on their sluggishness, on them in their sluggishness, on their dullness. Now, now, don't misunderstand what's being said here. There is a time for milk. Spiritual infants need milk. And in those cases, the milk is provided by, guess who? The mature. Right? The mature are the ones who disciple and teach the babes. And so when the author of Hebrews says, by this time you ought to be teachers, he isn't referring to the, the office of teacher. That, that's not what he's referring to. He's not uh, referring to this official. He's not saying, hey, every single one of you should have your own Sunday school class. That's not what he's saying. He's not talking about the, this supernatural spiritual gift of teaching. though, though that, that is present in the church, that's not his point. His point is much simpler that, than that. He is simply saying they all ought to be able to explain the basics of the Christian faith to others. They ought to know how to feed milk. They ought to be able to talk their neighbor, to their neighbor about who God is and what God's done and, and, and the resurrection and the second coming and, and death and punishment. They ought to be able to, to, to freely converse about these things. They ought to know them and, and be able to explain them in such a way that someone will say, oh, I don't agree with Christianity, but at least I can make sense of it. And he says, you ought to know how to feed milk, but instead, you still need the milk. In fact, one commentator, as he's breaking down this whole section, he's saying that these verses from 5.11 to 6.3 are intended to shame the readers. He says that he's bringing this up to shame them. He's trying to open their eyes to see the folly of their circumstances. They've been Christians for decades and they don't know the first thing about Christianity. 
They don't know what the Christian faith looks like, specifically its implications for their lives. That's the problem. And so instead of encouraging them in the high priesthood of Christ, something that, that maybe we could say is like a middle school or a high school, instead they need to go back to kindergarten. Right? They don't know the basics. For, the, for those of you in the, the public school system, they, this, these people should not have gotten past kindergarten because they, don't, they could not pass the SOLs. They, they, they should have been kept back because they, they, they're sluggish, they're lazy, they don't know what they ought to know. And so he continues to address this situation, moving on from verse 12 into verses 13 and 14. Having just said they need milk, he further kind of develops this contrast between milk and solid food. So look there at verse 13. He, he, again, he's, he's, he's emphasizing or developing this contrast between milk and solid food. Verse 13, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. And so the author here is, is filling out their immaturity. It's shown, he's saying, their lack of maturity is shown in that they, they're, they're unskilled in the word of righteousness or the, the teachings about righteousness. Those who live on milk and don't mature don't know what righteousness looks like in practice. Right? They don't know the difference between what's right and what's wrong. And that's his point here. Because as pressure is coming to this church, they're saying, well, actually, we, if, if we hold to these old covenant things and, and practices, maybe we won't, we won't be persecuted as much. Maybe we can, we can have faith in Christ and all this other stuff too to lessen the blow. And he's saying, you don't know the basics because what you're arguing is a forsaking completely of Jesus. You've, you don't even understand how Jesus has transformed what once was. And so their, their moral lives, they, they don't see the, the danger of forsaking Christ for, for keeping some old covenant laws. And he's saying, so, so it's the, the, there's a moral aspect here of their immaturity. And that, that, that continues, that idea continues there in verse 14. But solid food is for the mature. And notice how the mature are described. For those who have their, power, their powers of discernment trained by constant practice, right? As time has, has gone by, there's constant practice. But what can they do? They can distinguish good from evil. That, that's a moral thing. The contrast between living on milk and living on solid food is emphasized in, in how one lives. That's his point. The immaturity of the audience it is evidenced by their inability to recognize the danger or the evil of turning away from Christ. The fact that they are even considering it shows that they are unskilled in the word of righteousness. I mean, the Christian who believes anything is an immature Christian. Right? The, the, the person who, who undiscerningly says, well, I, I agree with this teacher, I agree with this, and, and just says, well, I believe everything, right? That is a sign of immaturity, unskilled in the word of righteousness. One, kind of, one commentator explains the mature in this way. The mature Christian knows how to make the right choices when confronted with critical decisions. Right? When it's as big of a d d deal as, as do I follow Christ or not, the mature Christian says, well, that's not, a, it's, it's going to be hard, there's going to be a cost, but that's not a question for me when, when these people are questioning that. And that's evidence of their immaturity. And so the author of Hebrews sees the danger in front of them, and he isn't confident that they are even aware of it because of their immaturity. And so this contrast, listen how one commentator explained this comparison, and, and maybe it was more powerful for me because I have young kids, but, but he says this, quote, an infant is neither able to chew or choose. Mud goes into the mouth as well as milk. Similarly, immature Christians can show aversion to spiritual food, saying, I don't like it, and an absence of moral principle, saying, well, what's wrong with this? 
In other words, when it comes to eating, a baby, right, I, I can attest, and many of you can, a baby, an immature person, doesn't know when, when good food's on the, on the spoon or dirt or mud's on the spoon. They're, they're just going to open their mouth and say, okay, come on. Or they're going to say, no way. They, they can't discern, oh, okay, these are my vegetables. I need these. These are good for me. They're not going to taste good, but, but I need them. Oh, okay, that, that's, I'm at the beach. That's sand. That's not going to help me really at all. Right? They, they don't know how to discern. There's no ability. Good and bad look all the same. Oh, it's on a spoon. I, I'm going to open. Or I don't care if it's on the spoon. I'm not going to open. There's no ability to discern. And the author is concerned because his hearers don't know how to live. And it's tied to their inability to understand why forsaking Jesus as their high priest is a bad idea. They haven't put into practice what they have been taught. And that's the issue. They are immature. And so the author of Hebrews, as he lays out, as he addresses the situation, the issue, he isn't hopeless. I mean, he, he shames the readers. I mean, his assessment of them is, is less than flattering. There, there's a point to this confrontation. He, he, he's, he's saying hard words to them, but he doesn't give up on them. Or, more accurately, he, he knows God, and so he has hope. And so look there at verse, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6. We see the solution the solution. So he's not hopeless, but he offers them a solution. Look there at verse 1 of chapter 6. Therefore, having said all that I've said, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Right, so, so this is a call to, to the correct course. He doesn't leave them in their shame state. Instead, he challenges them. Let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ. Right, that's a positive call. Let us do this. Let us press on. Let us get going. Let us move along past the basics. Let's stop visiting the kids' menu. Right? Let's, let's move on. Right? This is the positive call. In fact, at this point, you may think, well, well he's, he's going to revisit. He's going to have a, a basics course for them. No, he doesn't even do that. He just says, let's get going. Let's move on. He calls them to move on positively. But he also continues in verse 1 negatively. So there's a positive, let us move on. But then negatively, let us not. So he says, let us not do these things. Let us not lay again a foundation. Right? So, so that's negative. And then he lists off six things. Right? And these six doctrines, these six subjects, these six truths, he, he defines as, the, uh, the, there in verse 2, the, the foundation of repentance, uh, the doctrine of Christ, the elementary doctrines of Christ. So, so these six things are understood as the elementary doctrines of Christ. And I'll, I'll make this clear in a minute, but I think that these six things, right, they, they, are, they are common things, they're basic, and they should be understood as the, by the Christian as ways that Jesus has, has transformed what once was, the old and the new. So I think these are basic, why he says they're elementary doctrines of Christ, because anyone who's a Christian recognizes how Christ has, has transformed kind of the old ways that they're, they're being tempted to go back to. And so we're going to look at each one, but again, we, we don't know the specifics of what's going on here. We, we, we know only that the author believes that these teachings are things that, that he, he should not have to reteach. I mean, he, he shouldn't have to reteach the, the Hebrews these things. And so in his mind, moving forward means leaving certain things behind. They, they're being challenged to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Now, now he's saying, let us move on. He doesn't say, let's forget it. Now, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an important distinction. He doesn't say, forget it. We're never going to need that again. No. His point isn't that the elementary doctrine of Christ is not important anymore. He's simply saying that you must move past them. So, so just as the kindergartner eventually stops singing the ABC song, 
right? But that doesn't mean he doesn't need the alphabet anymore, right? The ABCs are the foundation of, of language. Did you know that? If you don't know the ABCs, you, you can't know anything really in English or any other language. And so you still need the alphabet, but at some point you move on. And, and so one commentator says the issue here is that the foundation must not be repeatedly relayed while the superstructure is never built. That's the issue. You, at some point you've got to move past the foundation and build on it. And so, so he says, let us, let us move on from these basics. So what were the basics? What are these six things that he lists? So, so notice there the first two, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. These are the first two, and, a, and these, I think, repair should be considered together. And, and these words, at least repentance and faith, should be familiar to you. Right? The, these two words form the foundation of the beginning of the Christian life. And so I think he's simply saying, we, 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 we don't need to lay again the foundation of, of repentance and faith. No, that doesn't need to be laid again because that's the foundation of the Christian life. Turning from sin, that's repentance, and to God, that's faith. And these two teachings, clearly reiterated and filled out by the ministry of Jesus in this new covenant, they found the beginnings in the Old, Old Testament. And so he's saying that this is, this is how people know God, by repentance and faith. And when Jesus has come, this is an explicit call to repentance from sin and faith in Christ. And so something they were forgetting was the way that Christ had transformed the entire Old Covenant, specifically the sacrificial system. So when the author reminds them of the elementary doctrines they must not build upon, or that they must build upon and not lay over and over again, it wouldn't be surprising if these elementary doctrines had some overlap between the old and new, and I think that's what he's saying here. And so it's faith and repentance. That's the whole. That's what I'm having to tell you what faith and repentance looks like. And then he lists four more things, which, again, we don't know the specifics here, but, but at least let me tell you how I understand these, these next four. So, so there's faith and repentance, big picture, overview, and then next pair represent the beginning of the Christian life, I would say, and then this final pair, the numbers five and six, represent the end of the Christian life. So in other words, it makes sense to me in an attempt to summarize the elementary doctrines for the author to say, okay, here's the main thing, repentance and faith. That's the basics. And the beginning, by baptism and laying on of hands, and the end, resurrection unto life or eternal judgment. So I think it's main thing, beginning, end. And so when we look at the second two pairs, I think one, it represents the beginning or entry into the Christian life, and the, 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 set, the final pair represents the end or the culmination. And so there, verse 2, the, the beginning, the, the, the next two mentioned are instructions about washings and laying on of hands. Now, again, there, I, I can't tell you exactly what this means. There's lots of, uh, of there's lack of clarity, let's say. So, but, but I think it does make sense, and I think what I'm arguing is right, but that what he's saying is that the washings here is reference to, the, to baptism. And so when you, you're old covenant, you're Jewish Christian, you're coming out, ritual rites, ritual washings were, were a significant part of the, the old covenant. And when Jesus comes, the, the, the washings language would, would certainly be applied to baptism, and so it seems likely to me that, that as an entry point in the Christian community, when you, when, you, when you forsake the old and you put your faith in Jesus, you are baptized into Christ. And it's a fulfillment of all that the old covenant pointed to, and it's fulfilled in Jesus. And, and baptism represents a symbolic of union with Christ. And so the instructions about washing would have been understood as the basic truths about baptism. And so maybe your English translation even uses the word instructions about baptisms. But I think, that's, I think it's saying that's the entry point. Connected would be another aspect or another act associated with entering the Christian community, specifically the laying on of hands. 
which if, if, if you go through the New Testament, the laying on of hands, it occurs in a, a wide variety of contexts. But, but here, I think his point is that early in the book of Acts, in the early church, the, the laying on of hands was, was attended by the, the, the reception of the Holy Spirit. So the apostles would go and they, they, they'd lay their hands and the Holy Spirit would come. And so again, I, I think the point is, is this is the entry point. There's, there's washings and so there's baptism and the reception of the Holy Spirit as the beginning, as the mark of the entry into God's people. And he's saying, I shouldn't have to tell you about this over and over again. And after mentioning those, he mentions resurrection of the dead and eternal judgments. And so again, I think here, these are the things associated with the end of the Christian life. And so these two, more than the others, evidently belong together, right? As they both refer to the end time events of, of salvation, which would be resurrection unto life, or judgment, a resurrection unto eternal judgment. And both are foundational to the Christian message, these are not things that should be easily, not, not to be easily forgotten for the Christian. This is the beginning. So you put your faith in Jesus. It's all about Jesus, but you're, you're baptized as a symbolic representation of your union with him. You receive the Holy Spirit, the, the blessing that, that marks you as one of God's people who has been given the Spirit, whom God dwells in. And then your, your hope in the end is a resurrection unto life. And, and your motivation for sharing the gospel is eternal punishment, eternal judgment that will not end. And these are basics. This is not like upper-level Christianity. This is the gospel, as I'll mention in just a minute. But if you're a Christian, these things should not be easily forgotten. Now, now of course, there are questions, concerns, difficulties in understanding some of these basics, but what there can't be, and what the issue was here, is a mind and a life that refuses to build upon these and live in light of these basics. And so to live as though the resurrection isn't real, or to live as though judgment isn't coming, or to live as though, as though a public affirmation of union with Christ is not necessary, or, or the reception of the Holy Spirit is not significant in the life of the Christian. Now, these are the ABCs, the basic building blocks, the necessary foundation for growing and maturing. And these are the things that the author says must not be continually laid over and over and over. Which then brings us to verse three, the last verse we'll look at today, and what I think is the most striking verse in our whole passage. In verse three, so, so look up at verse one of chapter six and follow along. Let me read just so we get the, the sweep and how verse three just is striking. So there in verse one, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and of instructions about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Verse three, and this we will do if God permits. So, so what's his solution here? How are we gonna leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity? What's the answer? Verse three, this we will do if God permits. Now, now, just let me make sure that you're following the logic here, right? The call of verses one and two, let us leave elementary doctrine, let us go on to maturity, let's not lay again these basic doctrines. Let's grow up, let's move on, let's leave the basics, let's mature. And that we will do, we will mature, we will grow up, we'll leave the basics. How? If God permits. Now, why is that striking? Why, why does that statement have, have the potential to unnerve you? I hope it does because it unnerves me. Is it not because of what's implied by the if? 
if God permits means, or at least implies, does it not that God might not permit? If God permits. Now, now just to be clear, some people take this phrase in verse 3 as a bit of a cliche. And so they take, it, take the author to be saying, well, I'll teach you the things that you should be learning in due time if God permits. God willing, we, we will cover these things. Right? More, more in terms of God willing, we'll get to that part of the syllabus. And that, that may be the emphasis. I don't think it is. But that may be the emphasis. But even if that is the emphasis, even if it is more of a cliche in that sense, there is still an utter dependence upon God. Right? There's, even if it's lip service, it still means what it means. If God permits, there's still a confession that God must be willing for this to happen. And so this means that no matter how you take it, Hebrews 6.3 is quite plain that the path to spiritual maturity must be and only can be paved by God. So, so the exhortation to the immature, the issue, the, 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 the exhortation is simply, you need God to do what I'm telling you to do. You need grace. You need God's gracious permission God must give growth. God must permit moving forwards on this path of maturity, towards maturity. And so the solution to the problem of spiritual maturity is the grace of God. There's no other way. And so the first step in spiritual maturity is a dependence upon God, a recognition that he must bring it, that he must do it. Spiritual growth is impossible without God permitting it. You should know that. And like I said, we're going to stop at verse 3, Lord willing. Next week, we are going to get to verses 4 through 12. And, and I would encourage you, read ahead, because these are some of the most challenging verses in the entire book. But I just want to stop here at the end of verse 3, and I don't think it would be right for me to end this time without taking a few minutes and drawing out two applications from this passage. And so I'll come back to the one that I'm just ending on, right, and go back to the first verses. So the first point of application is simply this. Sustained spiritual immaturity leads to peril. Sustained spiritual immaturity leads to peril or leads to danger or is, uh, or, or is dangerous. We ought, to take away, we ought to take away from the problem or the issue at hand. So we, so we shouldn't read verses 11 through 14 and say, okay, the issue is that some people are just going to be infants their whole Christian lives. Okay, let's just settle with that. That's not his point. The point, and what we'll see next week, is that the state of perpetual spiritual immaturity is a state that is, whether you realize it or not, slipping towards apostasy, as slipping towards forsaking of Christ completely. If you're not growing, you're falling. If you're not growing, you're, you're slipping. And no matter how slowly or how imperceptively it is, if you're not maturing, if you're drinking milk year after year, after decade after decade, if you remain a spiritual infant for the whole of your Christian life, you ought not to be encouraged or have confident assurance in the things of salvation. And that's, that's, that's just the point, and you'll see next week. Come back. If you think I'm being too harsh, spiritual infants can't remain where they are. They will either go forward or they'll fall away. Right? There's no neutral. And so again, we'll see, this is what we'll see next week with the harsh warning. Life and death are at stake. And so, if you're, if you're a Christian here, you've been a Christian for a long time, if you still aren't maturing, if you don't find yourself growing, if you're still struggling to take in solid food, maybe you're apathetic to, maybe, maybe your situation is that you're apathetic to anything other than the ABCs. 
Or maybe you've grown accustomed to just not thinking about God, to distracting yourself with, with insignificant things. Well, whatever the case may be, spiritual, spiritual immaturity is not a safe address for you to live at. Spiritual maturity is not a safe address for you. And so the call for you is simply grow up. Grow up, and I say that sensitively and I say that lovingly. Grow up, stop being a baby. You spent years and years listening to sermons and going to Sunday school. Are you building on the foundation? Are you growing stronger, more mature? If not, you ought to know that sustained spiritual immaturity leads to peril. It is a dangerous path. And so grow up. Now, if you're here, you're not a Christian. Let, let me just make a, make a word to you. You ought to start at the beginning. Right? You don't have to know it all at once. So, so becoming a Christian doesn't mean you, you have it all figured out. I mean, you'll never get it all figured out. But, but you ought to, to, your entry point is the basics of the gospel, that, that God created you for purpose to, to be in relationship with him, that, that you in Adam have turned and rebelled and you would rather make up your own rules, live life according to your own way, and that it's led only to death and destruction. But, but, but God hasn't left you or left me in our state of rebellion, but he sent his son, fully God, fully man, to, to live a perfect righteous life on this earth, to, to earn a, a grade that you or I could never earn. And then that righteous, that perfect son willingly went to his own death and was crucified on the cross. And in so suffering, he paid the debt of sin, the, the penalty that you and I deserve, and was killed and buried, conquered by sin for three days, but then three days later rose again, victorious over sin and death, and, and appeared to, to those, to lots of people, and, and then ascended into heaven, which is where he is right now, at the right hand of the Father victorious, ruling and reigning. And, and you and me, we get in on him and on his kingdom and on his work by, by simply trusting in him, by turning from sin, saying, I can't do it on my own. I want to stop trying. It's only leading to death and destruction. I want to turn from that and I want to, I want to put my faith in Jesus. And upon faith and repentance, we are given his spirit to dwell within us and to lead us and to guide us. And we are guaranteed of an inheritance that is waiting for us we, we are members of a, a kingdom that will never be shaken. And we are longing for Jesus to come back for us. And we grow. And as we live our lives, we, we grow. And it's not easy and we need others to come around us. But we, we enter with the basics of the gospel. And we never, we never forget those, but we build on those. And so if you're not a Christian, you ought to know that basics. And if you've been in this country for long enough, uh, or if you've lived here and you're of a certain age, you, you know the gospel. You've heard it. Hundreds of times, maybe. Do you believe it? The call for you, non-Christians, to put your faith in Jesus, repent from sins and turn to Christ. But then the second point of application, our final point of application is simply this. And this is what we ended on. This is verse three of chapter six. Spiritual maturity is a gift of God. Spiritual growth is a gift of God. God must permit your spiritual growth. There's nothing else. If this truth doesn't drive you to dependence, then you have no hope. If you hear me say that, you say, well, okay, I, yeah, that's fine. Moving on. No, you need God to grow. Amen. I need God to grow. Our spiritual growth is dependent upon God. And so this is the point of verse three. And so if you, like me, if you recognize a need for growth, if, if you, like me, recognize ways or areas where you can grow, 
And if that's you, like it's me, the first step, the way to apply this passage, the beginning of the growth process is dependence on God recognized. So just recognize, Lord, I need you. The application part of this application point is simply to recognize you need God and act accordingly. So, so every time you sit down with your Bible, maybe tomorrow morning, you sit down to, to read your Bible, or maybe you're driving to work and you're listening to your Bible. Every time you come into a Sunday service and you're, you're sitting there waiting, well, when are we going to start? Every time you walk into a Sunday school class, every time you try to do anything that's aimed at spiritual growth, you ought to cast yourself fully on God's grace. You ought to plead with him dependently, prayerfully. Permit growth, please. Help me grow. Allow me to grow. Lord, if you don't do this, I'm not going to grow. That's what dependence looks like. Now, don't get me wrong. Scripture makes perfectly clear there's another side to this coin when it comes to growth. There is a human responsibility. There's a human aspect. You must act. You must pursue spiritual growth. You must discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. The the author of Hebrews doesn't shy away from from placing blame on the readers. You have become dull, he says. You ought to be teachers, but you're sluggish. You're lazy. There is that side of the coin. So so if you want to grow, you have to do something. So so don't don't hear me say, well, God must do it, and you have nothing to do. These are two sides of the same coin. And so if you want to grow, maybe your New Year's resolution is to grow spiritually. If you don't do anything different than you did last year, if there aren't any new habits or patterns of life or disciplines that you're, you're aiming to put into practice, that you're striving for, you're probably not going to grow. And so if you want to grow, you, you ought to work and strive and run and persevere and, all, and on and on. However, the emphasis of Hebrews 6.3 isn't that human side. The emphasis of Hebrews 6.3 is that God must permit it, which ought to humble us and show us our utter dependence on him, and it ought to govern how we think about spiritual maturity. And so just as I close, I want to close with this quote from this, this, uh, uh, an American pastor and theologian, one of the greatest of our country, one of the greatest English-speaking theologians of all time. He preached a sermon, or, or wrote a sermon, that's titled, God Glorified in Man's Dependence. Uh, a great sermon, but, but notice how he, he closes one of his points. Talking about that God's, God's or man's dependence on God. He says, whatever scheme is inconsistent with our entire dependence on God for all, and whatever scheme is inconsistent of having our all of God and through God and in God, whatever scheme is that, it's repugnant to the design and the tenor of the gospel. And it robs the gospel of that which God accounts its luster and its glory. God is glorified in our dependence on him because when we are dependent on him, any progress, any growth, any glory goes to him and not us. And that's, that's how God designed it. And so Christianity, Christian growth, everything included therein is entirely dependent upon God and that leads us to him. Well, let's, let's pray together as we close.